This is the Dumont Television Network. The question really is, which candidate and which party can meet the problems that the United States is going to face in the 60s? The warning that I've received that the brown asset is not specifically too good. Greetings to the people. This is Tanya. And I would never choose to live the rest of my life surrounded by pigs like the Hello, I'm James Garner. Please drive under 55. If we don't, there may not be enough gas for any of us. Oh, no, not you, kid. Look, I really can't talk to you, okay? This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? What is So, I should start this whole thing off by saying that I live in a college town, and there's no good reason for that. I'm not affiliated with a local university in any way. It's just dumb luck that I happen to live in this zip code. The local university, by the way, is a large school of some repute. Nonetheless, the college barely affects my life at all, except for the random times when it does. Like most people over 30, I'm pretty much indifferent to the passing of time. My routine varies little from week to week, from year to year, from decade to decade. One month is pretty much just like the next month. And I can basically guarantee I was doing the same thing a year ago that I am today, and two years ago, and three years ago. But of course, I also remember how it was to be a student, when every year would be imbued with its particular scent, colored with its own musical soundtrack, and chronicled with its own particular carousel of memories. Life would go through countless permutations in the four years between being a freshman and being a senior, both in high school and in college. Sometimes, when I go to the cafes to write, I'm reminded of these things by observing the ebb and flow of the student body. You can always tell when it's a new school year. The peace of the summer is shattered. There's a particular buzz and crackle in the air as returning students reconnoiter and excited freshmen eagerly adjust to fill the container of their new lives as college students. It was during one of these transitional periods, September 2011 to be precise, that I happened to overhear something at an outdoor cafe near campus that spawned the subject of today's podcast episode. And in fact, it spawned the whole conceit of this podcast itself. And that something is the life and death of television. More specifically, the life and death of the age of television. But there will be more on that later. What had happened that September 2011 day was I innocently overheard a couple of freshmen sitting at the table next to mine. One freshman said to the other, I can't wait to get back to the dorm to watch the internet. Watch the internet, eh? I thought, well, that's clever. You're being ironic or post-ironic or whatever they call that particular kind of sarcasm these days. You're mocking the way your generation uses a valuable research tool, like the internet, as a cheap form of entertainment. Like television. 
I searched the young man's face for sign of affectation, for proof that it was all a joke, but there was none. And that's when it hit me. We are most indeed in a new era, or at least out of the old era. Watching the internet. It's the verb watching that drives home the point. When I was a kid, there were two kinds of people. Those who said, watch television, and those who said, look at television. I was acutely aware of the chasm between lookers and watchers, where television was concerned. Everyone I knew watched TV. Looking at television was an instant giveaway of someone who was too old or too anachronistic to embrace the game-changing nature of what television was. Watching indicates a deeper personal interaction between subject and object, tracking it, engaging it with your full attention, whereas looking suggests something more passive, a greater physical and emotional barrier or distance between subject and object. For me, the internet is still something to be looked at, or surfed actually, rather than watched, but not for the digital natives. They watch the internet the way I watch TV. A quick definition of the word digital native? In basic terms, a digital native is somebody who doesn't remember life before the internet. So let's say anybody born in the early 90s, about the age of those two college freshmen in 2011. So, thanks to that overheard conversation, I stumbled onto the concept of television being something with a finite lifespan, something with a visible beginning and ending. In fact, I spent a long weekend deliberating on whether that period of time is better described as the age of television or the era of television. I consulted some dictionaries for help, and what I found was that the term era emphasizes chronology and lineage, like the Roman era, while age is a more concept-oriented term, denoting a period centered around some dominant personality thing or idea, like the information age, the iron age. So although era sounds better on paper, age of television seems to be the more accurate phrase for what we're talking about here, with television being that most dominant personality thing or idea of the late 20th century. We can look at this period of time as an age that was centered around television, in the same way that the Iron Age was centered around the discovery of iron. But whether it's an age, an era, or even an epoch, you don't usually know you're in one until it's over. And that's when you assign its beginning and ending dates. So who can say if the age of television has reached its hard out yet? 
But based on what the digital natives are saying, the age of television seems to definitely be in its terminal fade. So when we talk about the age of television, we're talking about a sociological phenomenon, not a technological one. The novel aspect of the age of television is best seen in sociological terms. For one thing, it combines the baby boomers and the Gen Xers into one grouping, which was a leap of logic that would have been impossible a few years ago. You can only make judgments like that in hindsight. In real time, you would never see Gen Xers and baby boomers as primarily one and the same. Our entire generational identities were predicated on how unlike the other one we were. But future historians will look right past that flimsy pretense and see us as two quarreling siblings under the same roof, looking basically indistinguishable together in our earnest pre-information age innocence. What binds the boomers and the Xers together, and what separates us apart from all the other generations, is the primacy of television in our lives. Like Generation X, the baby boomers watched television while their parents looked at television. The baby boomers grew up with TV, and they couldn't really conceive of the end of TV. And until that fall day in 2011, neither could I. Quite the opposite, in fact. Television was the most futuristic thing any of us, baby boomers, Gen Xers, any of us had known. In an era defined by the liberating wonders of household electrical appliances, this device didn't just do a chore. It rewired our brain circuitry, in many cases becoming our most reliable companion, imaginary best friend, and surrogate parent, all in one. The age of television, shorter than a human lifespan. The era between the end of World War II and the rise of the smartphone is a period whose geopolitics will keep future historians busy and future schoolchildren amused at the pre-digital primitivity of it all. They'll laugh at us going through life convinced that ours was the brave new world, thanks to color television. And the fact that we had zero awareness of the imminent arrival of personal computer technology or the impact it would have. To us, color television was proof that the future had arrived and that we were the generation chosen by the fates to receive it in our lifetimes. To be sure, the age of television is one half of an even larger period of time, something I call the analog century, which dates roughly from the 1890s to the 1990s and encompasses the advent of all electronic media, that's film, radio, sound recordings, right up until the moment audio and videotape started becoming scarce on store shelves. Late 90s, early 2000s. So by that reckoning, the year 2000 works quite handily as the new year zero for this post-analog age we're in. 
Just change BC to mean before computers and AD to mean after digital, and you're set. Laugh if you want, but this nomenclature is pretty on the nose, and it places the age of television firmly on the BC side of history. And it means that the age of television is shorter than a human lifespan. For those of us who lived it, the 20th century sure felt like the future. Thanks to all the innovations from cars, airplanes, radios, and movies, right up to the household electricity that gave us television. The term 20th century even sounded millennially futuristic. But that was deceiving. The 20th century was still the 1900s. Just another transitional century like the 1800s were. Legacy centuries of the Industrial Revolution and the Age of Enlightenment. The real future begins right about now, in 2000-something, with the digitalization of our world and the nearly complete process of miniaturization from desktop computers to handheld devices to smart cells implanted right into our biology. This is the bigger picture into which the age of television fits. So we've talked about the ending of the age of television. But when did it begin? We have some easily identifiable milestones from which to mark the beginning, all falling within a narrow range of dates. There was a Scottish engineer named J.L. Baird who came up with something called the televisor in 1925, which was a form of electronic television. And Philo T. Farnsworth, who created television signals as we know them now in his San Francisco lab a few years later. Farnsworth is doubly iconic because he is a quintessentially wholesome middle American small-town boy, with a name to prove it, who went on to invent the Brave New World device with the cathode ray tubes, the rabbit ears antennae, and the radium glow that would end up rewiring our brain circuitry. Philo T. Farnsworth invented the future. Another good start date for the age of television is the World's Fair of 1939, where the first commercially available TV sets went on sale. They weren't very good. And World War II put that enterprise on the back burner for a few years. But by 1948, there was regular network TV programming, and over the next few years, television sets would arrive in millions of American homes. So we can conservatively estimate the age of television to begin in earnest around 1948, when four networks began broadcasting primetime TV seven nights a week. But as previously mentioned, the age of television is a cultural innovation, not a technological one. The real TV milestones would be the events that dictated the cultural history of the second half of the 20th century. These dates include the Ed Sullivan debuts of Elvis and the Beatles, which awakened the manifest destiny of a generation of teens and preteens that would sweep away three centuries of American puritanical mores in one fell swoop. Another milestone, 
the first televised presidential debate in 1960 between Nixon and Kennedy. Radio listeners thought Nixon won. TV watchers gave the nod to Kennedy. Guess who got the most votes that year? And ask yourself, have elections ever been the same since? More milestones. The nightly footage from Vietnam, best encapsulated by the triptych of the self-immolating monks in 1964, the GI igniting the straw hut with his zippo in front of the wailing village woman in 1965, and of course the summary execution of a blindfolded Viet Cong prisoner by a South Vietnamese officer on the streets of Saigon in 1968. The Vietnam War was brought into our living rooms with graphic footage of casual violence like the above, every night, in living color, making it that much harder for people to not take a position, and opening up a cultural battle on the home front that was unprecedented for an American overseas military excursion into a country people had scarcely heard of a decade before. The 60s ended on a high note when America sent men to the moon and brought them back alive. That this monumental event was orchestrated to be broadcast live on TV surprised nobody. What thrilled us was not so much that a man could walk on the moon, but that with television, we could see and hear a man walking on the moon as it happened. One more TV milestone was reached in 1973 when the Watergate hearings were simulcast in real time over the course of a summer. This has been described by some as the world's first installation of reality TV. Over the next 12 months, people watched the fall of a president from the comfort of their living rooms. And, as with the Vietnam War, few people were able to emerge from the ordeal without an opinion. Nixon became a four-letter word, Watergate became the go-to shaming term for the rest of the decade, if not the century, and into this one. And it all stemmed from a presidential scandal that in hindsight seemed relatively tame compared to the bitterness it unleashed. That's the power of television. After 1974, society settled into a post-60s equilibrium. We concluded that not only the wider world, but very likely our own nation was doomed, and we retreated inside to watch our televisions. Television, from medium to well done. (laughs) Watergate had been the last great milestone of the age of TV midwifery. In 1975, Saturday Night Live debuted. From then on, the best stuff on TV was not the events of the world that the tube could bring into our living rooms, but the stuff that its writers and producers came up with. Stuff like Saturday Night Live whose writer's room contained, arguably, the most intelligent and fertile creative minds the counterculture had to offer at the time. 
TV was no longer just the medium. It had also become the message. That's the world I grew up into, and probably you too if you're over 35. I knew nothing of a world where TV wasn't society's greatest and also most ubiquitous achievement. Television was everywhere. Television dominated the cultural landscape the way the Great Pyramids dominate the Giza Plateau. Omnipresent. Electrifying the airspace with awe, wonder, occasional fear and loathing. In an era of divorce, working mothers, and the meltdown of the nuclear family, TV was the fixture around which childhood was anchored, and the hours, the days, the weeks were measured. The question that bored children asked themselves and each other was no longer, what should we do today, but what's on the tube today? End of an era. A British child who was three years old when Victoria became the Queen of England would have been almost 70 when the crown was passed from Victoria to her son, whatever his name was. Although logically, that Breton had to know that one day there would be a new regent. Viscerally, a post-Victorian world would never feel normal to him. And so it is with us and television. TV is filled with all its establishing milestones, but we could scarcely conceive of an endpoint. For anyone growing up in the second half of the 20th century, television was an infinitely expanding universe. TV might not have a hard ending the way it had its hard beginning. It might just dwindle into ever-increasing obscurity, eclipsed by the new technologies in the same way TV itself came to eclipse radio, the technology it evolved from. For those of us who were weaned on television, we will continue to watch our programs until the day we die. But for the digital natives, the internet is what's on, while television is the clunky technology that Grandpa remembers, like a Victrola or a player piano. You have been spending quality time inside the TV room. The TV room is a production of Sorif TV. Please find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You know what? I'm not so sure about Twitter. Better cancel that. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and elsewhere on the internet at Sorif TV. That's S as in success, O R E. F as in failure, TV. Or better yet, check out the content-rich website at www.sorif.tv. That's www.sorif.tv. Thanks a lot. Bye for now.